Good evening and shalom, shalom. Welcome to Bet Ariel Wednesday Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy, the fourth book of the Torah containing Moses' last words to the Israelites before their entry into the promised land. And and here we find a, a man filled with wisdom and great ex, and great experiences uh, and who went through so much. He actually was 120 years old at this time. You know, his first 40 years he spent in Egypt, in Pharaoh's palace, but as we are told in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, that he refused to be called called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God. The next 40 years he spent in the wilderness as a shepherd. It was his training period of time. And for his last 40 years, he became a shepherd of men. He spent these years guiding the Israelites out of Egypt to the door of the promised land, where he spoke the words of Deuteronomy we'll be reading today. All these things make the, the words of this book filled with great advice for us today. And so we will keep on with our quest on kosher food, uh, which we started last week. There is one more information we did not yet see. And we will also look at the subject of tithing. What does the Bible say about giving? Is everyone called to tithe? How much should we give and when should we give? We will also see the great blessings attached to giving, particularly those of rest, of Shabbat. These things are actually linked with tithing. But before we get into this great book of Deuteronomy, let us answer one important question Sharon will read for us. Referring to the passage of Matthew 21:19, where Yeshua curses the fig tree, many say that he cursed Israel. How can Israel be cursed when she still has so many promises and blessings that are upcoming according to the scriptures? Can you please explain exactly what the fig tree represents and what those fruit on the tree might mean? And of course, for what reason is Israel here being cursed? Uh, thank you for this question. No, Yeshua did not curse Israel. He would not curse a nation he died for. But he did curse that part of the nation that did not bear the fruits proper to a chosen people and encouraged others to disobey the word of God by luring them into idolatry. This is what Jesus had in mind here. The fig tree only represents one facet of Israel. That is its religious institution and by extension its national standing since it was its religious leaders who, who, who were at the head of the nation and who refused to recognize the Messiah which brought about the, the, its, the, the destruction of the nation in 70 AD. The words of Yeshua here reflect the words of the Lord throughout the Torah and throughout the prophets and the Ketubim where we find so many of these warning curses. Let, let us begin to look at the passage you are referring to. It is in Matthew 21 verses 19 to 20. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? 
this actually was, was prophetic of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple again in 70 AD. And also of the many prophecies we find in the Hebrew scriptures about this current diaspora or dispersion of the Jews throughout all the nations of the world. However, staying in the context of Matthew, Yeshua gave another prophecy. In Matthew 24, where he also prophesied about the rebirth of the fig tree as we see it today. He said in Matthew 24:32. Now learn this par- parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Here he speaks, Yeshua speaks of yet another time when Israel, the fig tree, will come back again as a nation. And this specific time refers to 1948. It wasn't long ago. Since from 70 AD, it never was a nation living in the land and and governing in any capacity until recently in May 1948, when and against all odds and coming out of the Holocaust, which aim was to eradicate Israel. Israel, the nation rose again because God said it will. And notice the wording of the prophecy, Yeshua, he he does not speak of fruits or of figs yet. He spoke of leaves only, referring to the fact that at this point, Israel is not yet a believing nation. It does not produce spiritual fruits. The fruits will come later when Yeshua comes back the second time to establish his kingdom. From 1948, including our current period of time, Israel is back to the land in unbelief, in preparing also for the tribulation time, which is about to come very soon. This is why there's no peace in Israel. This is why the believers in Israel, the believers in Yeshua, are are, are scorned by the general public in Israel and are living with, in varying degrees, the, the persecution laid on them by the general public and by the religious orthodox community. This prophecy of Yeshua follows the one of Ezekiel, who also prophesied concerning the return of Israel in unbelief before the tribulation time. Ezekiel saw a valley of bones in Ezekiel 37, and suddenly bones coming together to form a body. But Ezekiel was surprised by the absence of a very important element. He said in Ezekiel 37, 8, And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them. But there was no ruach, there was no spirit in them. So Israel today is very much uh, religious, but not according to the word of God. Otherwise, they would discover the truth of what the scriptures say about Yeshua. While the fig tree represents national and religious Israel, leaves without fruit represents false religion. This we can understand, by the way, by going back to to other places in the scriptures where the leaves of a fig tree are are also covered, our first parents to hide their unfruitfulness. In Genesis 3-7, after Adam and Eve committed their first sin, their first attempt was to cover themselves and they did it with what? Fig leaves. Then the eyes we read, in Genesis 3-7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves 
covering. Here, the fig leaves play the same role as it did in the first century, and even today. It, it, it attempts to bypass God. It attempts to please God in a new self-directed way, one that avoids the only means to salvation, recognizing that you cannot work for, you, for this salvation, but it is only given to you through faith in Yeshua. We see that the first thing that God did for Adam and Eve was to provide the needed covering, the blood via the animal skins, the means by which they could enter into eternal life with God. This was the first death in the Bible, if you remember, demonstrating what exactly is needed for salvation. And as more revelation is given in the scriptures, it points us to the final sacrifice, who is Yeshua HaMashiach. Fig leaves cannot save anyone. No man-made religion can save anyone. Only God's way through his son. As for the idea of cursing, you know, it, it is indeed very strong, but the Hebrew scriptures are filled with so many curses poured on those on Israel because of their disobedience. And the cursing of this fig tree finds its root with two prophecies, so important prophecies of Moses at the beginning of the Exodus in Leviticus 26 and at the end of the Exodus in Deuteronomy 28. Considering Leviticus 26, it is so extensive that from verses 15 to 67, these about 53 verses are full of countless curses should Israel not obey the word of God. In Deuteronomy 28, when the Jewish people were at the door of the promised land, they were given one more large reprimand from 50, verses 15 to 68, which are filled with warning. In both these passages, we can perceive actually the suffering that Israel endured these last 2,000 years, including the Holocaust, including the, the many pogroms. But see that among the last curses found in both passages of the diaspora itself, that is, the diaspora itself, this is the same warning we find with the withering of the fig tree in Matthew 21. To sum all this, in the withering of the fig tree, Yeshua announced one of the fulfillments of Moses' prophecies, that is the diaspora, the last stroke of these curses. And then in Matthew 24, 25, Yeshua begins to give further details concerning the eventual rebirth of the fig tree by first bringing out the great difficulties they will experience during the tribulation through Matthew 24, the seeds we are already seeing in today's times. This time of tribulation would eventually lead to the messianic times when Israel will be fully reestablished and justified when at the end of Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats are judged. Let us now go to our study of Deuteronomy. We are in chapter 14, if you have your handout, page 14, right? section A, C, uh, we, we have covered the, the, the kosher section of this book, which concerns the various foods the Israelites were to eat and others uh, they were not to eat. So these laws were given to them so that they would not mingle with the idolatrous nations around them. They had a task to perform, that is, to be a priestly nation to the world. And, and for this purpose, they needed to stay away from idolatry so that they could be sanctified by the word of God. Again, the Israelites were to be separated, not because 
They are a superior nation, not because they are better, but because they are the same as the others. And this concept applies to modern-day believers as well, Jews and Gentiles. If the New Testament emphasizes that we should stay away from idolaters, there are so many passages. It is because we are like them. And so we are told in so many ways that while we are in this world, we are not of this world, just like it was with the Israelites. We we learn for all believers, for instance, in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That is, while being in this world, our citizenship, our home, land, is in heaven. But see that we're not told to segregate, but we ought to be well-trained, wearing the strong armor of God and dressed with much love in order to be able to go into the world and reflect God's glory and His purposes. That was actually the same purpose for Israel. And so the Spirit of God puts it this way in 1 John 2.16. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the world is to partake of the things that are not pleasing to God. However, it is not the world we ought to love, but the people in it. And there is nothing like the law of the Messiah to remind us how far we ourselves have to come out of this world thinking and our great need in keeping ourselves from it. This separation between light and darkness was taught by Yeshua when he said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon. What is mammon? Mammon is an Aramaic word meaning wealth. Wealth. The, 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 the unhealthy wealth of, of this world that trusts and rots as opposed to the wealth we invest in where, where, where the storehouse is in heaven and where no thief can ever break in. And so while we still live here, we need to be that light into the world. So while <clears throat> staying in the section of foods, of the kosher section of the Deuteronomy, there's one more passage about kosher laws in Deuteronomy chapter 14 that we should look at. Look at verse 21. Very interesting. It says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You know, historians tell, tell us that this practice of boiling a goat, a young goat in its mother's milk, was carried on by the nations around Israel for superstitious uh, purposes. So here we can understand that it was forbidden for the Israelites to do so. However, the Talmud produced a lengthy elaboration of this precept. The rabbis or, or, uh, or ordered that the separation of meat from milk and it must be as complete as possible and never to be mixed. This is why they have separate pots and pans, dishes for, and separate cutlery, one for meat, one for milk, even separate sinks in the, in the kitchen. Some religious homes have even two separate uh, kitchens. But this is an extrapolation of the text. In fact, the Torah teaching, it teaches that there is nothing wrong in presenting both milk and meat together. I know that might sound very, uh, you know, uh, out of this world for some Jewish people who are listening, but there's a verse in the scriptures, actually, which tells us that Abraham himself served the two of them, but see to whom he served it. Look at Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. 
Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. So first we, we see that the guest is, is identified as the Lord, Yud Hevavhe, Jehovah. And with him were two individuals whom we later understand they were angels who went actually to Sodom. But see what Abraham offered them to eat. Would you believe me? Tell me, I'll look at verse 8. So he, Abraham, took butter and milk and the calf, which he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Yeah, I just want to tell you, it's very interesting, even entertaining, to see what some rabbis have said about this passage. Uh, This is what Rashi, for instance, wrote. He says, they appeared to be eating. He says they pretended to eat, but did not eat. Another said that Abraham set a very long table and he served milk on the one side and, and meat on the other side and he stood in between, making sure they would not mix it. These are examples of forcing an interpretation. This is why people say that you can make the Bible say what you want. Sure, when you force something into the text, any text, you can make it say what you want. Again, the reason for these kosher laws was just to keep Israel sanctified, set apart from the nation as they matured into the word of God so they would go and preach the word. And it is at this point where we're approaching another great passage of the book, one that speaks of giving, giving to God, giving to the poor. The tithe, uh, these were to be offered as specific time during, during the year. They were spread out in such a way throughout the history of Israel, throughout the, the, the calendar of Israel, that they, sh- they would always keep a certain anticipation in the heart of every Israelite to a time of release, of rest, and of rejoicing with which it was linked. For tithing was often associated with a time of rest, a time of Shabbat. These passages of Deuteronomy Chapter 14, 15, and 16 are very practical as they call the reader to put on the side times of rest with our Lord, something we all need. Let, let me bring you to a few uh, verses which speaks of the time of tithing throughout these three chapters and where we, we can perceive the blessing found in giving, in giving. You can follow me if you open up your scriptures And so beginning with verse 22, notice the demands uh, for the tithe and the time period given. It says, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produced year by year. These tithes were to be collected during the year and they were to be eaten in the Lord's presence at the temple during and especially one of the three feasts, all Israelites were to present themselves at the temple. And so during the year, there was this anticipation leading to this great time of rejoicing in Jerusalem. It's like planning for three trips a year. And, and see verse 28, where, where it is extended. At the end of every third year now, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it, store it up within your gates. These were tithes actually for the Levites. We'll see this very soon. Then we look at Deuteronomy 15 verses 1 and verses 12 where the Shabbat of years is here highly praised. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant 
a release of that. It was a time of freedom for both, by the way, the borrower and the one to whom the debt was owned, the lender. For the borrower, it was a release in that it was a new start, a new opportunity to begin again and, and not to have the burden of the debt. For the lender, it was as well a time of freedom. In releasing the debt and exercise in relying on the Lord for all his needs, he was in a sense released from running after the one who owed him the money. How could now he but could now actually look to the Lord in obedience and that he will actually provide for all his needs? And the Lord, I want to tell you, is faithful in doing this. So it was a new beginning for all. And it closes with the same expression and it began in 1428. We see it in 1520. We read, And you and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. This was in reference to the feast again of the Lord. And it is in chapter 16 that three feasts are singled out for pilgrimage and gathering with God in bringing our tithe, our tithe. Three times a year, all Israel again was to be pres present at the temple. Here an emphasis is put on the month, the weeks, the days. These times correspond to the three important feasts, speaking of the yearly feast of unleavened bread or Passover. In verse 1 we read, observe the month of uh, Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord. Abib means barley, so it was the season of the harvest of barley. Speaking of the Feast of Pentecost, it is in verse 9. And speaking of the Feast of Tabernacle, it is in verse 15. You have a chart, by the way, on the screen for you to follow. And again, we learn that tithing is linked with, and this is important, with rest, with Shabbat, with joy, with communion, not only with other Israelites, but with God himself. Tithing was for them not only what they were materially giving, it was an expression of a faith that they have in God. It is an affirmation that one recognizes the sovereignty of God. This is what happens when you give. You recognize the sovereignty of God in your life. Giving is like a renewed covenant of partnership. For many, tithing is the most difficult thing to do. How can you part yourself from things you worked so hard for? How can you give away what you labored for? But there are a lot of blessings. The Bible says there are a lot of blessings attached to giving and honoring God with our first fruits. And so, at the time of giving, the times of giving are divided throughout the years. Time of rest in the portion of the scriptures actually takes so much importance. It is also here where we are given an overview of the system of tithing in the Bible. How much were the Israelites giving? The Hebrew word, by the way, for tithing is the word ten. So then a tithe is ten percent. But in the Mosaic law, there were three main, main tithes. Three main ten percent, if you want, which equal to a total tithe of about twenty-three percent from your revenue. Be assured the Bible doesn't ask anyone, right, to, to give that much. But for Israel, these tithes were like a tax system, since Israel was considered to be a theocracy under God's government and itself. So the tithing in Israel was divided into, into three main parts. 
the first tithe went to the priestly tribe, those who maintained the temple worship. It was also for those who were responsible in preserving the scrolls for, uh, of the scriptures as well, the making of new copies as the old one wore out. It is because of the many tithes that it, the Israelites gave that we have actually our Hebrew scriptures today. The, the, this is what Paul must have had in mind, actually, when he, what he said in Romans 15, verses 26 to 27. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. This is a powerful verse. You know, Paul's argument is that because the Gentiles got the word from the Jews, and this through his, throughout history, it is only normal that they support their Jewish brothers and sisters in the faith, should they be in need, of course. Especially those who are working hard to minister the word of God to the other Jewish community. And so the same argument is brought to the Israelite vis-a-vis the Levites, who were the keeper and the teacher of the word of God. These Levites were the ones that also, who also taught the word of God to the Israelites as they were scattered in all the territories of Israel. These Levites were not, n- not assigned any land, actually. So, so their only revenue was the priestly tithing. This tribe needed to be supported by the rest of the population. And so this priestly uh, tithe is mentioned in two passages in the Mosaic Law, in Numbers chapter 18, and here, Deuteronomy 14.27, which says, And the Levite that is within your gates, you shall not forsake him, for he has no portion nor inheritance with you. And so because these Levites did not receive their own territory, every tribe was simply told to lay aside cities called Levitical cities, where Levites were to live and, in, and fulfill their duty of teaching the others. You know, there were 48 uh, Levitical cities throughout Israel. These are 48 cities that you can see in the map if you're watching a video. 12 for each uh, of the point of the compacts, and the compass, that is, or four per tribe. And see the map. This is a lot, a lot of cities. For the Lord wanted everyone to be covered by his word, whom the Levites were teaching. This reminds me of a great verse in Isaiah 14.5. I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. And so see how, how, how the Lord made sure that everyone in Israel will, can go to a city, a Levitical city, to meet a Levite and to learn about the word of God. And so he does today. And so he does today. The second tithe was 10% of the remaining 90%, and this was to maintain the festivals and sacrifices of the Lord, especially when every uh, Israelite was called to go to the temple during these three feasts. Now, this is all the time we have. When we come back, we will speak, we will look at this second tithe leading to the third one, and we're going to see all the blessings that are attached to giving. When we give, the Lord blesses. There's one verse I want to share with you before we leave. God says, 
the one who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. Oh, I'd love to have the Lord owing me money, wouldn't you? May the Lord bless you. Don't